Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am Emily Jean Fox. I am here with host extraordinaire Joe Hagan. I feel like I'm welcoming myself back with this intro. Hi. That's the way to welcome yourself back is to do it yourself. I guess so. I'm happy to have you back. Yay. This feels like a nice little treat for me. Well, while the world turns, you've been on leave uh, with your beautiful baby, JR, in a kind of uh, love cocoon. And uh, so what's the report from inside the love cocoon? <sighs> well, we have an eight-week-old baby. She's pretty delicious. She is smiley. She's a morning person. And I don't mean that in like the way that babies are morning people because they wake up very early, which they do and which she does. But uh, she's so smiley in the morning. She's just a real happy camper. Uh, my mom used to say when I was little that I would wake up like Snow White because I would be so smiley. And it was like the animals were pulling back my curtains and I would talk to the birds and the mice and, and just be so happy every every time she woke me up in the morning and I didn't really believe her. But now I see that in my own daughter and it is such a delight in the morning when you're tired. Uh, so that's really, that's the latest over here. She's sweet. We love her. We'll keep her probably. And we are not in that first initial newborn haze of not checking the news over here, uh, mostly because it feels too important to tune out right now. What's going on in the world feels crazy. And you and I were just talking about this when uh, we said hello to each other before the show, but it has been such a luxury or it is such a luxury when you have the ability to be in your own world and your own cocoon and to be afforded the chance to not think about things that are going on outside of your own cocoon. And so many people in this world can't tune out what's happening because it's happening to them. Mm. I, I thought of your baby and my own children uh, when I saw the image of the American soldier pulling the baby over the over the razor wire and cobble. And, you know, we, we all have to, you know, pinch ourselves and for how much uh, luck we have to not be there and to not be among those suffering like that. Um, you know, there, for, but for the grace of God go I type of feeling that one has when you're witnessing human suffering and really have very little power over it. Um, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, well, you know, if you were listening last week, we had Saad Mosseini, who runs the biggest private news and TV programming in Kabul, and he gave us a little bit of a frontline view of what's going on, and there's so much uncertainty, and to have to live in that uncertainty, and we're slowly but surely seeing messaging from the Taliban that things are about to get really terrible for the for women. They, they just declared that there will be no music, for instance. There will be no music, uh, because they it's against Islam and their version of Islam. Um, so uh, just today, uh, as you and I sit here and record, a bomb has just gone off, suicide bomber. ISIS is taking credit for it. Americans have died. Uh, that's just came over the wire. And so we're asking ourselves, you know, a lot of questions about, obviously, there's a lot of critics uh, looking at the Biden administration and asking, was this done correctly? Did you not plan for this? Why is it going so badly? Um, and then on the other side, you know, we had to get out at some point, 
and there was probably no clean exit from this war that, as James Carville said uh, on television this week, uh, that we lost 15 years ago, right? I mean, this has like a, been a disaster that people, one politician has handed off to the next one for the last however many years, and now here we are dealing with, you know, it's the comeuppance of the decision that we made 20 years ago. Yeah, you're, you put it exactly right. This has been a, a political football and people have passed this down because it's a really sticky, horrible, tough situation to get out of. And there was probably uh, no good way to do this other than just doing it. Uh, I guess the question will be in the days, weeks, months, years to follow of the shitty ways to have to do this very hard, terrible thing. Was this the least shitty way to do this very hard, terrible thing? And I don't think anyone has the answer to that. I think this is something that will be investigated and parsed and reported on for years to come as it, as it should. This is major stuff, uh, Look, I think this is politics as usual a little bit. And um, I don't mean that as like politics as like the game of politics, but I mean like this is what happens in Washington when you're making major decisions about wars and about national security and international relations. So uh, these are the things that you deal with when you're president, when you're in charge in Washington. These are um, sort of the standard things that happen when you're the United States of America. And this is sort of par for the course when you're president. Last administration, we didn't have these kinds of decisions made because no real hard decisions were were made in Washington. This was a decision that the past administration passed down to this administration. In fact, um, I, I feel like the attention we're able to pay to this feels more standard than what we have experienced over the last five years. And I don't know if that magnifies what we're feeling now or if that minimizes what we're feeling now. I can't quite tell exactly where it lands. Well, I will say that this whole news event and the things that are happening have punctured uh, what heretofore had been a fairly peaceful administrative uh, you know, situation, political situation. Uh, for the Biden administration and for Democrats. And suddenly this is the first crisis really of the administration in a real way. I mean, they were managing the pandemic in a thoughtful way for a while there. Obviously that's the next, uh, you know, crisis that continues the ongoing crisis that's returning. And, uh, you know, the, we will all sit around and wring our hands and, and do the Monday morning quarterbacking about Afghanistan, and it's going to turn into a political football and become part of the 2022 midterm elections, no doubt. But, you know, you and I are journalists, and my whole career has been – there's been a war in Afghanistan. You know, I started – I think I, I've been in journalism since around 98, 99, and very shortly thereafter, suddenly we're in this war, and we've been in it ever since. I was – I will tell you, I was uh, in middle school when yeah. we we got – I think I was like – I truly think that my bat mitzvah was around the time that we went into Afghanistan. Wow. Wow. So that's – you know, and we've had enough time to read about it, to learn the history about it to watch documentaries about it, to understand the American soldiers' point of view and all they've fought for and all they may look at and think that is all was a waste of time or that they, 
you know, it was all in vain. Um, but I tend to see these things in sort of Shakespeare vision. It's just total tragedy. You know, I mean, you, you, you can go one way or the other with it and second guess any of the decisions from the beginning to the end. And, it, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And it's not clear, you know, how this would have went well. Because we were talking about and reading about back in 2001 that every great nation that had gone into Afghanistan fell to its knees and ended in a total disaster and a waste of blood and money, right? So, yeah. um, and so here we are, and now we have to face it and look at it. And it just happens to be while we're already facing multiple crises right on the home front, namely in Florida, right? Yeah. <laughs> Florida I... is like the, you know, uh, going off the charts with a pandemic right now because of the insane ignorance of the governor. In any case, I'm I'm, I'm free forming here, but you get my point. No, I, I think that's that's exactly right, and I think we also happen to be at a point in time where we, as a culture, are more open to talking about human suffering in general, and I think we've seen that in a number of the crises and um, news events over the last two years. Uh, we've seen that with protests. We've seen that with social movements. We've seen that with COVID. Uh, I think that there's, I don't know if it's more of an appetite or an ability or just the way at this moment in 2021, people frame news, but there seems to be more of a humanitarian focus on these things. And uh, so I think that you're you're talking about these less in a political foreign relations way as maybe they did 20 years ago and more of let's focus on the people who are actually suffering here. And right. I think that that's really interesting. Maybe this is my kind of blind spot in the way I like to be a reporter. I think you're probably the same way. I guess I care less about like the machinations of what went wrong in Washington and more about what this means for the people in Afghanistan or how the soldiers are feeling about this. That to me is just more interesting. And I certainly think that that's a way to get more people to care about the issue than it is to talk about uh, who's to blame and, and finger pointing in DC. So I think it's all in all, it's a good, good thing that people are focusing on that rather than what's happening in Washington. But that doesn't mean that uh, smart people shouldn't be, be thinking or talking about that too. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Well, I think often, you know, about, and I have been thinking about the reporters that are there. I mean, the incredible courage of the people that are making some of this footage. You know that when the war in Afghanistan began, there was no Twitter, right? It was a lot of our social media world, a lot of the world we're living in with cameras and everything. You talk about empathy and more relating to the people who are suffering on the ground. Well, we are able to see more of it than we ever have in our lifetime, even 
going back to the beginning of this war, which was mostly covered by, you know, the mainstream uh, network TV. Um, so here we are, uh, and we're looking at it through that prism. And of course, as I was mentioning in last week's episode, one of the ways this is going to stay in the news is uh, the Republicans are going to want to exploit this. And so those emotions that we feel when we see this suffering get often get converted into political weapons, and that's what we're going to probably be seeing for months to come. And on the one hand, we'll experience that sickening feeling of seeing people suffering, of seeing this like kind of ignorant, you know, religious extremists who are making the lives of people who had been on the road to a sense of freedom that they had not had before in Afghanistan, you know, under the, in, as much as they disliked having a colonial power, you know, in there, and a lot of them did, you know, but it was a new era. A lot of, think about this, a 20-year war, and I, as I learned last week, the median age uh, in Afghanistan is 18. So think about that. Like, they've all come up with us there, right, in some form or another. They've all come up with social media themselves, mm with access to, you know, soap operas on television and girls' schools right there in Kabul, you know. So this is going head-to-head. All of our values that we did implant there for, you know, mostly we want to think good. If, if there's a silver lining, it's that, right, that these things exist there, uh, are about to come head-to-head with this extremist, you know, religious cult militarized gangsters basically who are going to take it over and and shove it all to the side and suppress it and we hate to look at that i do you know and i i but i didn't support you know back in the day they called it nation building and that's what they were complaining about and that was the critique of george w bush and the new conservatives is that they were nation building and this is not our place but now that we have <laughs> you know we don't want to see it undone and that's going to be just a wrenching thing, and cynical people are going to, in our political world, are going to translate it into something, you know, a big dumb weapon, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're just at the outset of what that's all going to look like. It's all just out on the high wire right now. We don't know what's going to happen. But. Yeah, well, it's a rejection of all things progress and good, and I guess of the ideals that we hold dearest. And I think that the tension is, uh, that rejection is gut-wrenching and it is heartbreaking, but it probably never should have been something that we forced down people's throats to begin with. And so that's, that's the hard tension. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we are constantly finding ourselves here in the, in the news business, but just everybody who pays attention to the news is constantly trying to educate themselves about what the ramifications are. And, you know, we just had this terrorist bombing in, in Kabul that was claimed by ISIS. Well, so I did some research on that just this morning trying to figure out, well, how do the Taliban react to that? Mm. Well, and, and it turns out they're in the same religious sect and they're both, they're rivals, they're rival groups. But so to some degree, they are not interested in having ISIS involved either. Sure. But it's all – the whole country is about to become a kind of uh, – as it has been for decades, you know, when Russia or the U.S. weren't in there, kind of a fractious tribal country. And, um, you know, we're not going to solve that today on the podcast. But 
these are the things that we're going to be paying attention to. These are going to be the storylines that are going to become part of our, you know, daily and weekly um, kind of analysis. Of course. Speaking of of storylines that are are part of our daily and weekly analysis, I have to ask you as our resident Florida expert now, that's what I consider you, among other things, but but primarily that. Uh, You mentioned earlier (laughs) about what is happening in Florida. Uh, What's your take, particularly as we head, I mean, they're already back to school in Florida. And, you know, what we're seeing in Florida is grave, but we're sort of seeing it everywhere now to a degree. So what's your take, Florida man, Joe Hagan? Well, you know, the truth is, I'll, I'm just going to be echoing what everybody else is saying in, on this front, which is that the uh, reluctance or the refusal of Governor Ron DeSantis to let cities have mask mandates is just completely ignorant and uh, ridiculous. And of course, that's added to it. And uh, just and also allowing kind of uh, making a comfortable home for the anti-vaxxing message, right? That this is somehow a liberty uh, question and not a question of public health, which I find just, you know, we've this is what we've been dealing with, not just in Florida, but Florida's suffering it the highest right now. The highest rates uh, since the pandemic began are now. You know what? I don't understand. And maybe this is my brain is broken since having yeah. a baby. I understand how someone could be anti-vax. I could not disagree with with that more. But I understand how you get to that point. I understand the logic to their illogical way of thinking, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't understand why anyone's anti-mask. Like, what? why do you care? You, you put a seatbelt on when you get into the car, and that is way more uncomfortable than putting a mask on your face. You do a million things. You're put on shoes on your feet to protect them every single day. Shoes are expensive. Most of the time, they're not super comfortable. You have to change them a lot, whatever it is. I cannot understand the logic of DeSantis and all of the people who don't want to wear a mask at this point. Well, and that's the Florida uh, thing that I would, the takeaway there is you're looking for logic, Right. Yeah. This is not about that. This is about the mask got politicized. They became a symbol, a symbol of this idea of rejection of Anthony Fauci, rejection of Joe Biden, rejection of people telling them what to do. It's like, you know, whatever you do, I don't want you to jump off that bridge. Well, I want the right to jump off that bridge come hell or high water. And DeSantis has gone all in, all in on the politics of that right? There is this, as we have learned, uh, there is like a 30, between 35 and 39% of the country uh, will just latch on to this idea that the public good means you are trampling on my liberty, right? And, you know, it, even when you get stories like the, uh, the Phil Valentine story, okay, which is just it's one of many, right? Now they have these sort of like uh, deathbed regret stories. They're all over the place, right? The conservative Nashville talk show host, he died over the weekend uh, after being, you know, promoting uh, anti-vaccine philosophies. He even did a parody, like a musical parody of the Beatles called Vaxman and was making fun of people for getting vaccinated. And of course, he's on his deathbed and his family is telling everybody, oh, please get vaccinated. We were wrong. 
even those stories do not sink in for a lot of people. And by the way, I just want to, uh, I know we were talking about masks, but just to, and, and, and the idea of getting vaccinated, we know now, you and I both have talked about this on uh, at one point or another, but we know people who are vaccinated who have gotten tons. COVID. Tons. And I know tons of tons, people. yeah. Personally. Yeah. And so, you know, this is getting stickier and stickier. So masks are, that's where the rubber hits the road now. I mean, you, you want to protect yourself even if you are protected. Um, you need every kind of prophylactic you can get at this point because we don't know where this is evolving. And, and so, yes, it's back to the masks and whether you need to use them. I, I will just say quickly, uh, I was listening to the radio the other day, and it was just like a you know oldies station. Don't ask why I was listening to that. Mm. But, um, and uh, a full two-minute public service announcement came on that said the CDC is saying in our county, in, in New York, everybody should be wearing masks even outdoors. And I was like, wow, I've never heard a two-minute public service announcement really on any terrestrial radio station anywhere. And I was like, this is – that's like a, a big exclamation point. That's a big alarm. And that's where the mass thing – like you said, it's – the tragedy of its politicization is exactly now, right? I think – well, I'm shook by you listening to terrestrial radio, but I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> let that go because I really yeah. think – the Trump administration, and I hate talking about them, but I kind of have to as we talk about yeah. this. They did a lot of dangerous shit in four years. They did a lot of damaging, really terrible stuff. I think that the most dangerous thing they did was politicize this virus. I really do. I think that there will be ramifications for that simple fact for years and years to come. And I think the fact that protecting yourself from a global pandemic became a right or left issue is the most bananas thing. If aliens came to earth and you tried to explain yeah. that to them, they would turn right back around. It's just crazy. It's an absolutely crazy fact. And it's such a shame. Mm -hmm. And millions of lives would have been saved or altered. Yeah. If, if well, the Trump administration just said, you know, we're all in this together. And instead, uh, we had a lunatic narcissist in charge who mm -hmm. failed to accept that anything bad could happen on his watch and potentially he would be blamed. So he tried to ignore it, make it like a, a, a political issue, demonize the people who are actually trying to protect the American people. And it's uh, everything bad that you're seeing now is a direct result of that sort of uh, decision that a, a raging narcissist made to protect his own image in the moment. And if you want any clearer evidence, and, and this is a signal moment for exactly what you're saying, uh, that the ignorance itself is viral. You know, you had Trump at a rally suggesting to his own followers that they get vaccinated, and he was booed. He was booed. That is a big moment. That's where the cult has become unhinged from, you know, uh, from its own belief system. Well, he made, he made it this, this, this hate cocoon, and then the cocoon ate him. He got—he was eaten by the hate cocoon. 
And I, I just was, uh, to your point, um, Bess Levin, our own Bess Levin at the Hive, uh, wrote an item about Trump being booed. Um, and she said what you just said, and, and in her words, she said, if Trump had wholeheartedly endorsed getting vaccinated against COVID-19, members of his base would have been trampling one another to get a shot the moment they were available as if the jabs were deeply discounted 62-inch flat screen TVs on Black Friday. Well, as only uh, best could. As, as only best would put it. So, But that's so true. And now here we are. Trump himself is getting booed because the people are... That's just how dug in they are about this thing. And well, so, well, here, here's the reality is that the president got vaccinated fairly early on and did not publicize it. And right. so these, these were not, not calculated. This was a calculated thing to not put forward that he was yeah. vaccinated. He's kind of famously an anti-vaxxer before all of this. And, uh, or he was very vax skeptical for many years before this. And, I think that there was a lot of handiwork done to not promote the vaccine early on. And now he's sort of walking the back. It's so silly to me because uh, he should have taken credit for it. And that feels like a very Trumpy thing to do. And taking credit for it would have, or initially taking credit for it, really would have saved so many lives. And it was a weird calculation by him who tries to take credit for anything good, even when it isn't actually related to him. Uh, this in a, in a real way is related to him and, and he did not take credit. And, and now, uh, he, well, is he couldn't really... because his inner voice is that the voice that he has used to attract that certain percentage is like, I'm a stubborn asshole. Yes. And so even if there is reason, logic, good with a capital G, any of these things that I might attach myself to just because it's the right thing to do, I think I won't do it. That's sort of like uh, where they're at. Yes. Can I, uh, speaking of illogical things like that and, and stubborn heels dug in mentalities, y you know, the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine this week, which is amazing and so exciting. And we all knew it was coming, but now it's official and it feels good that it's here. And it will allow universities and hospitals and employers and movie theaters to potentially uh, require vaccination. And I think we've already started to see that in just a few days since that's been true. Um, but there's been this sentiment in, in the, the little news that I am consuming that this is now suddenly going to make people feel good about getting the vaccine who are vaccine hesitant. And I think that that's like the craziest assumption about human behavior. No one actually felt like, oh, I'm just waiting for the FDA to give a stamp of approval and then mm -hmm. I'm going to feel good. It was just an excuse for people. They'll find another excuse now. So this of course. feeling that now there's going to be a, a whole swath of people who were vaccine hesitant who are now going to be rushing to their local CVSs and doctor's offices or wherever you can get your shots now to get it because the FDA signed off. I think that's a little bit of a false narrative or false hope. Well, and, and the people, you know, there are hospitals that are mandating that all their employees be vaccinated. And they're like, you know, huge groups inside working in hospitals who are refusing to be vaccinated. So that's how deep it goes. And by the way, we talk about it like it's political and it's a right wing thing. But I know like people on the sort of Jill Stein end of the oh, really? uh, liberal left who they don't want to get vaccinated either because – there's a strain of kind of, 
know-nothingness that happens on every political spectrum. As, as much as I would like to blame uh, President Trump for everything, the anti-vax sentiment has been alive and well for a very long time, and you are entirely right that it is not a right issue. It is just as much a fringe left issue as it is a fringe right issue. Mm -hmm. It really does span both sides. And I think what we're seeing now is for many years that this this hesitancy has existed. Uh, it's sort of been in the shadows and it's sort of been regulated by the states who require vaccinations in schools and workplaces and all sorts of things. And so you haven't really seen it except for, you know, sometimes you'll see in... Hasidic community in New York, there will be an outbreak of measles because they don't believe in vaccines. But but mostly it's something that we in the mainstream don't encounter because it's regulated in, in a pretty strict way. And it's just in the fringes of both the right and the left. But for the first time, that vaccine hesitancy is um, impacting all of us. And right. it's not a new thing. It is just newly relevant to all of our lives. Right. Robert, Robert Kennedy Jr. has been flogging this for years and you know, kind of instantly turning himself into uh, one man vax, you know, anti-vax crackpot. Um, hey, Joe, can, so you, can you uplift me before we go here? Because I have okay. an infant who uh, is going to need my attention and I want to go back to her feeling good. So I'm counting on you well, to take me I out like of this. I like that breaking news from the, from the baby front uh, yeah. is that... Right here on the show, we're imminently in need of taking care of Jr. Very imminently, uh, her dad <laughs> is. I can I can feel him sort of walking her around the house to uh, quiet her down for as long as possible. But I don't want to go back to her thinking about um, anti-vaxxers and uh, mm -hmm. what's going on in Afghanistan. Though it's it's obviously never far from my brain. But I have a feeling you have some good news. Well, I have a funny story to tell you, and then we'll uh, have a little surprise at the end here. Mm. Quick funny story is uh, I was with my family on a weekend trip to Vermont. I don't live that far from Vermont in New York, and so we drive up there occasionally, and we have a relative up there. And we were on a remote country road in the middle of nowhere, and there's a, you know one of those requisite signs that said blueberry pies with an arrow pointing up a dirt road. Mm. So I said, my wife said, hey, let's go get one. I said, oh yeah, let's, why not? A little misadventure. Go up the dirt road, mile and a half or so. And we come to this sort of off-grid hippie farm with like flowers, beautiful, you know, and a little stand with vegetables and the, the blueberry pies are there. And um, uh, the owners come out and it's a couple, beautiful couple named Jerry and Flower. And they are older, probably in their 60s. And uh, Flower has these beautiful uh, blonde uh, pigtails and flowers in her hair. And and he, Jerry's got a ponytail. And they just live in this, like, kind of wonderful uh, kind of hippie tableau. And uh, then Jerry notices that, hey, I think maybe uh, there's some something leaking from your car. And I notice that my oil pan's been punctured and all the oil has dripped out of my car because I hit a rock somewhere along the way. And so the sum total of that is I end up having to call a tow truck and it's going to take three hours. And so in that three hours, my family, you know, takes off. They're picked up by my brother and they go off and I wait. 
And they say, hey, why don't you go up to the healing cabin up in the woods there and, and just wait? Oh, my God. So I go up to the healing cabin where they do Reiki and all kinds of other kinds of stuff with tinctures and I'm oils. I'm shocked you're alive and talking to me about this right now. It, it, it was amazing. And so then Jerry comes up, and Jerry is this, turns out, is a former uh, federal penitentiary corrections uh, guy who was in the prison system, working in the prison system for like 20, 30 years. He's from Tennessee, and he had become incredibly—he tells horror stories about things that happened inside our penitentiary sure. system that, that were damaging. And he was sort of at his wit's end, and a lot of people don't make it that far in that, those kinds of jobs because of the horrible things they witness and the stress of it. And he was visiting a friend in Vermont, and they said, you should go meet this woman, Flower. She can help you out. So he went and met Flower, and they fell in love. And he is now like, you know— what he says, this is the, he was calling this the magnum opus of his life. He's arrived to this point where he meets this beautiful sort of uh, hippie angel in the woods of Vermont. And now they're living off grid and he's built all these sort of uh, interesting systems to make the spring water, make a refrigerator, and then they have hot water using a wood-fired stove. I mean, you know, the whole works. It was like an amazing thing. And I thought, well, geez, you know, uh, Jerry, who... Uh, told me horror stories from the prison yards of America, uh, now, you know, basically unplugged from our whole society and now is living uh, in this gorgeous area with this beautiful uh, woman, Flower, who, by the way, has a, a kind of a shrine to John Denver in her house uh, because she was good friends with John Denver. And uh, so it was a whole interesting thing. And uh, it wouldn't have happened if my car hadn't broken down that I'd be hanging out for a few hours with some fascinating people in the woods of Vermont. And I know that's not related to the news, but and it has nothing to do with my uh, journalism world. But in a way, it does, because as you and I both know, anytime you meet some people, you're going to go into your journalist mode and you're going to start getting stories, right? And it's wonderful thinking, to find stories. I was just thinking uh, the way that you are talking about them is as if you are writing a story about these people and I, I appreciate how your mind works there. And it's exactly how I would approach, uh, my oil pan being punctured if I knew what an oil pan was in a car. <laughs> um, well, I'm not sure I knew either until it was punctured. <laughs> well, here's, here's what I take away from that story beyond your, um, beautiful storytelling and, and journalistic mind we haven't really all been out in the world meeting strangers in a long time. Mm -hmm. And so even though we're in this weird COVID time where we're sort of half in, half out and unsure of where this is going to take us, it's really nice to think about the prospect of uh, happenstance. And yes. I think I think about this a lot living in Los Angeles this last, you know, whatever it was, 18 months. Obviously, COVID makes no ability for just happening on anything. But I think Los Angeles in general takes a lot of that away for me, at least. I think that it's, it's not, a, it's a place that, that you are in a bubble. Things are planned. You're in your own car. If you're fortunate enough to have a car, uh, you don't really have that adventure that you have in New York. You walk out of the house, you don't know who you're going to run into. You're probably going to run into somebody. Maybe you're going to stumble on a musician or a store that is opening or a sample sale or, a, you know, grand opening party. You never know what's going to happen around the block. And that's the beauty of living in, in New York City. Here, you don't really have any of that. 
uh, there's no spontaneity, or at least I have not witnessed a ton of spontaneity in, in living in Los Angeles. Um, but, but it gives me hope for when the world does open again, what could happen. And by the way, Vermont has like a 80% vaccination totally. uh, rate. And totally. um, they do it very differently in Vermont. It's such an unusual and wonderful state. And, you know, they have politics of every stripe up there. You know, you're going to find your Trump signs hither and yon as you go up and ramble through the Green Mountains there. But um, in any event, exactly that. I was in kind of in bliss getting to meet some strangers and get their unusual story. Um, and so I promised you a little surprise at the end, and this Precious. is just a little thing that I thought maybe people would enjoy. It came up to my attention a couple of days ago. People know that I'm a music fan. That uh, a new recording by John Coltrane had just been unearthed by the people at Impulse Records. And it's a live recording of John Coltrane's magnum opus, A Love Supreme, which is a for those in the know, is a four-part, almost like the illuminated text of jazz history. I mean, it's like this beautiful uh, kind of spiritual four-part uh, journey uh, musically. And so it was recorded in 1965. It's uh, only one of no two known recordings of A Love Supreme. Wow. And it features uh, John Coltrane's, the, his first appearance in John Coltrane's band, a guy named Pharaoh Sanders who, if you listen to jazz, you would know who he is, but you don't need to know, uh, but who is still playing today and just put a record out last year. And in any case, uh, the good people at Impulse said, uh, hey, yeah, if you would like to play some of it on your podcast, you can. And so I thought, I'm going to take that up because we could use a little Love Supreme at this time of mm. you know, dreadful news and pandemic, and everybody's kind of bummed that uh, the state of the world has arrived uh, such as as it is here in August, late August of 2021. Uh, so we're going to go out with it. And uh, I hope that you enjoy this little snippet. It's called Psalm. And uh, the one thing I will say about it before we play it is that uh, the saxophone lines that you're hearing all correspond with a poem he wrote. Wow. So it's as if he's singing with the saxophone. Mm. And uh, you can look up uh, John Coltrane, Love Supreme Psalm and words, and you would find these words and uh, you can kind of listen to him play the lines. And it's a kind of a beautiful way to access jazz for people that don't want to really cope with all the noodling, uh, which includes people I know and love, including my wife. Uh, so uh, I hope that you will just uh, stay calm. Don't freak out. We're about to play a little jazz as we outro, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to go play this for, for my love supreme, little baby June, who I can hear in the other room who's ready. Joe, thank you for doing this with me, making me feel like I can have an adult conversation. Let's get to the music. Beautiful.
that's our episode this week. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Emily Jane Fox for coming back to address the news with us. Thanks to Brett Fuchs, our executive producer. And thank you to the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast possible. If you like what you hear, hit subscribe. Come back next week and the week after. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. We're going to see you next week.